Welcome to Terragrams. Hi, I'm Craig Drazone, and I'll be your host for the 15th delivery of Terragrams. In this dispatch, we are in South Boston, Massachusetts, and are joined by Chris Reed. Chris is a registered landscape architect and the principal and founder of the Boston-based practice Stoss Landscape Urbanism. Stoss operates within and between the fields of urban design, landscape architecture and planning, and recognizes the urban context, large and small-scale ecological systems, and functionality as basic tenets of its practice. The Architecture League of New York has named Chris and Stoss a 2008 emerging voice and C3 Publishers of Korea has recently published a monograph of their work. Stoss projects range broadly in scale and scope and can be found in the United States, Canada, Asia, and the Middle East. Their work includes waterfronts, brownfield reclamation projects, temporary landscapes, open spaces, and projects associated with large-scale urban infrastructures. He's currently teaching at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, has taught at the University of Toronto, and regularly teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm pleased to welcome Chris Reed. Here we are in South Boston on West Broadway. Chris, welcome to Terragrams. Thanks. Where did you come up with the name Stoss? And what does it mean now after 10 years of practice? Stoss is a, a, a geological term from American geology. It refers to the impact end of a glacial landform. Uh, so the, the the piece of the earth that's actually pushing back on the glacier as it overrides. In German, it means push or kick, as in kick in the ass. Um, and I found out after the fact that it it's also a um, colloquial term for, oh, uh, how do you say, going out at night to uh, be amorous. <laughs> But Is that the, a verb? <laughs> to, yes, stoss. to stoss. Uh, so are, by, you, are you a stosser? I, I am a stosser. <laughs> <laughs> but by that time, the uh, uh, the business cards were printed. We we're down the road, so it's too <laughs> after ten years of practice, how does that fit I mean, into your framework? I think our our um, desire has been to push the limits of, of uh, thinking about what landscapes are and what landscapes can do and what role they can play in urban metropolitan environments. And I think that's been, that, that piece of it's been strengthened over time. I also chose it as a non-name-derived firm mm -hmm. in order to establish the idea that it is a collaborative studio, that there are many voices that come into play over the course of a project or a series of projects. Those voices are internal and external, and I think having a name that kind of recognizes the, the influence of more than one person is very important. Mm -hmm. You're a landscape architect. By training, I'm a landscape architect, though I have an urban studies liberal arts undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. And what did that, what did that expose you to? That's what kind of set the stage broad for me. When I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I began to take courses primarily through uh, the design school here, graduate level courses uh, for which we could cross-register about the history of the city and urbanism generally. And through that study began to realize the impact that projects could have on a much larger scale. That's what turned me toward urbanism and eventually landscape as opposed to architecture. And, you know, even as we studied the work of Olmsted, we were looking at it from the standpoint of urbanism and urban framework, not from the standpoint of picturesque design principles. So the idea in a city like Boston that the landscape becomes infrastructure and folds in other infrastructures like light rail becomes a flood control measure, um, carries with it open space and recreation, uh, but also becomes a kind of economic development and transportation initiative all rolled into one is really the lens that I came into landscape through. Did you know this before going to Harvard before um, concentrating on urban studies? Not so much. I mean, I was interested in the city growing up but had never thought critically about it. 
Did you grow up in a city? I grew up uh, an hour south of here, and you could call it a city of uh, 100,000 people. It was a fishing town, and even though it's an hour away, the idea of Boston seemed Boston seemed like such a distant place. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd go there once a year on a school field trip or something. Mm-hmm. So, and, and so when we did, it was kind of a big event, and, and we could kind of get lost in the city and, and getting to just wander around. And did you take these... This- the luggage from your urban studies to UPenn, and how did you position yourself in the UPenn program? Well, when I when I was I, uh, coming out of school, I went and worked for Michael Van Valkenburg for a year, primarily just as an office boy. I didn't I hadn't <laughs> taken many design studios, but he gave me the opportunity to work there for a year, do some general things, but also occasionally help out with. Um, a model or a drawing or something because I did have some skills. And that experience really introduced me to what a landscape practice is all about. I then went on to Penn primarily because of the work that Jim Corner was doing down there at the time and the way that he was talking about landscape on a much broader level. I had the luxury of choosing between Harvard and Penn and I thought that work seemed very ripe down there. And so I spent three years down there studying um, and looking at larger scale issues and their impact on landscape. Was exposed to Ian McCarg, who was still teaching and alive at the time. Uh, even even guys like Ed Bacon were still around, and in fact gave us our first tour around Philadelphia, kind of wandering mm-hmm. through all these these mm-hmm. out these alleyways that he had uh, outlined. Mm-hmm. And do you regret making, or um, are you happy with the decision that you made about going further <coughs> south? Well, no, Pennsylvania, I, I, not, not at all. At, I mean, I Harvard. think you know what's nice is 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 I've had many different opportunities to be exposed to different ways of thinking. So a year of working for Michael, uh, three years of studying for Jim, then I came back to Boston and worked with George Hargraves for six years, mm-hmm. and so in in just that decade was exposed to a wide range of influences and perspectives um, and different ways of approaching landscape mm-hmm. from an academic standpoint and from a professional standpoint. Did you see, were you able to think about landscape in a bigger urbanistic scale with Hargraves? Absolutely. I mean, m- much of the work that they're doing is larger scale anyway, whether it's planning or, or some of their larger scale urban park projects, which always have um, an urban design component to them, because in in many ways they're often remaking underutilized or abandoned edges of cities, and not only need to think about the park itself, but how that park then develops a a critical interface with the city. So part of that work really looked beyond just, just the park. The, the level of complexity in some of the projects um, at Hargraves was important, too. A lot of the work that I did uh, at the University of Cincinnati involved um, a whole-scale remake of the central piece of that university's campus. And it's it the involved... Meandering. Right. The, they call it Main Street, which is a kind of overly simplistic term for what it is because of the layers of, of infrastructure and service and access that, that, that really form the foundation for what then become a series of uh, student service projects and recreation programs and, and um, uh, restaurants and cafes and those types of things all serving this uh, student body, layered in with landscape spaces, gathering spaces on the outside, and even the, the university's football stadium. So dealing with all these layers of complexity and at the time up to five different architectural teams and a whole series of engineering teams, it, it, it's in the complexity that I really um, uh, became quite interested in, and, and served as uh, good training for, for how you then take that back out into practice. Mm-hmm. And so as a landscape urbanist, what does the office of Stas offer that a traditional office can't? Well, I think, I think part of it's in perspective. I think we look at landscape at the very large scale. We look at landscape in terms of uh, it being a set of systems, whether they're environmental systems or infrastructural systems. Uh, we look at the role of infrastructure 
uh, as foundational. We look at the role of ecology as foundational. And sometimes ecology in the literal sense in that we're dealing with plants and plant mechanisms and, and the way that plants respond to their environment over time. Um, but also as a sort of uh, analog, uh, if you will, to how you set up frameworks for projects um, uh, in the public realm that build in uh, response mechanisms to whatever set of inputs that project may encounter over time, fiscal, political, social, etc. Mm-hmm. I think this idea of... of Landscape as infrastructure, landscape as a set of ecologies, landscape at the very large scale, even, or, or at least tapping into systems working, operating on the large scale, is quite a different perspective from what might be a more traditional landscape approach through a uh, study of horticulture and art, art history, say. Mm-hmm. And then Charles Waldheim's reader landscape urbanism reader, you have an essay in there about some of America's big infrastructural pieces. Could you talk a little bit about that and how, what kind of role do they play in this idea of landscape urbanism? Uh, I look back at a couple moments um, in American history, starting with the late 19th century, and look at what what, what is the public works project? I mean, the, 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 the simplistic idea of a public works project is it's a very large-scale project that's run by a government bureaucracy, and it's a top-down um, kind of uh, initiative. That may be one component of it at a particular time, but it's certainly there, there's a much richer history to how public works projects develop. In fact, these bureaucracies didn't exist. And some of the earliest public works projects were a result of collaborations between social reformers, people in the health industry, um, urbanists, landscape architects, many others, businessmen, who would see an opportunity to clean up a problem, try to solve a problem like drinking water Mm -hmm. that simply arose out of cities becoming denser and people living closer together. And it was was very much a a ground-up phenomenon, but one uh, where multiple people had a voice and a role and a a stake, a formative stake in what what would become the project. I thought that was quite interesting Mm -hmm. because over the course of the 20th century, the, the the primary roles now have been curtailed and tended to go toward engineers who made a very powerful case that projects were becoming so big and complex that only somebody who was specially trained in engineering could handle them. And so they, they kind of capitalized on this opportunity and, 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 and really found a, a space to work and, 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 and gained a, a, a certain level of... of prominence and recognition broadly, socially, culturally. Whereas uh, during that same time, landscape architects, designers, were pushed away toward the margins or walked away toward the margins mm-hmm. and didn't tend to be involved in the formative role of projects. I looked at a couple other case studies as well, looked at some of the WPA projects during the Depression, and it's interesting to read there the list of things that might qualify as what they were calling mm-hmm. a, a public works projects, which included tree plantations and cows and pasture initiatives and roads and bridges mm-hmm. and airports and things that that, that that you'd expect, as well as cultural institutions. And it was a very broad definition of what a public project mm-hmm. uh, uh, could be. Also looked at um, you know major initiatives like the Hoover Dam. Uh, out in the West, which was was certainly conceived by a, a bureaucracy, but then had to be very inventive about the way it was executed. There wasn't a company large enough to build it, so so six companies had to form a coalition in order to figure out how to build it, and then physically to build it, they had to invent a whole series of of, of systems in order to just construct the, the, the dam itself. And so there were a lot of these spin-off innovations that resulted from this original idea, kind of set of infrastructural ecologies, if you will, that mm-hmm. then, then gave life, uh, be, had a life of their own. They even had to found an entire city in the desert to house the workers and the, and the families. And so all of a sudden, you know, this notion uh, of the public works project as a catalyst for innovation, technical invention, uh, and even new urbanism or, or new settlements of mm-hmm. urbanism 
uh, became uh, quite paramount. And then you, you know you kind of take that to the uh, to the next left level as as technological systems were being developed and the predecessor to the internet was being developed. That really arose out of very informal coalitions between people working for corporations that were doing research, people in the government, people in academic institutions, and it wasn't a top-down phenomenon at all. It was a set of distributed networks that that individual people who started sharing information um, on a a one-to-one basis and developed a series of networks. Very different way for a public uh, works project to be conceived. And so I thought all these examples pointed towards different roles that one could take as a professional practitioner. Mm-hmm. Thomas Hughes, uh, who's an author who's written about many of um, these same projects, also talks about the role that one can take in, in, in being involved from project conception through design and engineering uh, all the way through to implementation, management, mm-hmm. uh, and so on including things like political stage setting and fundraising, figuring out the fiscal issues involved and how the project might begin to engage some of those issues up front. So this is a much broader role for the professional, one that I think um, landscape architects and many others could embrace and in a way really opens up the project to, to a, much, uh, a, a much broader set of issues and, and may give... Uh, the people who are acting in this way um, uh, much more of a voice in some of the larger scale projects uh, as they're conceived and as they evolve through time. And if landscape arch- if the profession of landscape architecture hasn't been historically involved in some of these bigger projects and landscape urbanism has been born in or the title has been born in our uh, near past, why is landscape urbanism becoming such a big deal today? I think there's an interest in the city first. I think architects have also rediscovered landscape over the course of the last decade or two uh, on their own um, in a way of looking at landscape as a model or as a surface. So you have you know people like Stan Allen writing about the landscape, um, the thickened mat. You have architects developing projects that are no longer uh, a box set within a site. It's it's a much more integrated approach to how a site might become a, a building or a building might mm-hmm. essentially uh, spread itself out into the landscape. I think there's a, a bigger discussion going on in contemporary design and planning circles about landscape generally. I'm not sure landscape architects initiated that conversation. I think some architects discovered, um, particularly ecologists, um, who at at the same time were really revamping their field, looking at more dynamic systems than a set of static principles for how environments um, uh, work. So I think that had a lot to do with it. And I think just a rediscovery of the city in the past 10 or 20 years across the globe, whether it's, you know, a city developing a series of, of um, projects that would lure tourists or initiatives like the Barcelona Olympics, which took this one-time event as a catalyst to rethink its urban fabric and remake its urban fabric. I think there are a number of ways that landscape and urbanism have have made it, made their way to the center of, of these discussions. And I think one of the things that many of the people who are writing about or, or around the issue of landscape urbanism are doing is trying to bring some of those initiatives under some kind of umbrella, give it a kind of rhetorical framework to be able to talk about some of the conceptual issues um, uh, that might be arising out of this kind of emergent subfield, if mm-hmm. you will. Will landscape ur- urbanism help the field to prepare projects which are more sustainable? Uh, certainly in some ways, but but um, you have to be careful about what you mean by sustainable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the lead checklist, um, and there are very kind of mute strategies about where you might install 
native plant communities in ways that that might not be sustainable at all. That native plant community might have been there at one time, but now there are a different set of conditions that, that wouldn't allow for a native plant community to reestablish itself. So you, you have to be very critical about that. I think we do think about sustainability. We think about it very broadly. We think about it from an ecological, environmental standpoint, as well as a fiscal, social standpoint as well. Um, uh, and so we tend to build in mechanisms to projects that might allow projects to evolve over time and respond to whatever set of influences um, they may encounter. I think this idea of responsiveness is what makes a project sustainable. The, in the end, it might be that you have to import plant materials or um, some other set of materials into a project in order to then render it sustainable within the environment mm -hmm. it finds itself. So as an example, in uh, Milwaukee, we were doing a project in a remote area of the urban fabric where vandalism could, could be a factor. And it was a very tough site, windswept, and, and not a whole lot would grow there. We introduced bamboo for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons was the way that bamboo is a very vigorous um, um, plant in tough environments, and no matter what you do to it, chop it down with an axe or knock it over with the wind, it will begin to regenerate on its own. And so uh, in that sense, uh, an exotic plant not native to a community becomes uh, one of the most sustainable things that, that, that you can do. How do you think the lead lead point system, the lead checklist can become more responsive to these bigger issues of sustainability? Well, it, it's, it's, I mean, lead's a funny animal, too, because essentially you, you, you make your own case for it. You, you are your own, um, you're, you're your own judge of, of what is a, what meets the criteria, and then, and then, and then you make a case for it uh, as you submit for certification. So, so it's kind of an odd it's almost a self-certification that then has to be stamped by somebody else. So it's an odd, odd way of going about it. But that process doesn't allow for any kind of critical dialogue or much of a dialogue at all in terms of, you know, if somebody looked at, again, this plaza in, in, in Milwaukee, they might immediately say, my God, you know, bamboo and this and that, and none of that works. But in fact, if you start to get under the project and understand its context and the specific set of issues you might begin to realize that, that there is a project that meets the goals that there aren't any boxes on that list to check. And so, you, you know... Uh, Can you, you make up some boxes? Yes. In fact, there are a couple and about a innovative... Point, point right, there are a couple about innovative design or something. Mm -hmm. You can put whatever you want <laughs> in there. But, but again, it tends to be very limited and focused. On the other hand, um, it opens up opportunities for us to begin to have creative dialogues with project engineers, for example. And, you know, project in Dubai that we're working on, they have just a, uh, adopted a version of LEED. They've renamed it something else. But it's, it's giving us opportunities that we normally wouldn't have to tap into gray water systems, to sit there and work with the uh, mechanical plumbing engineers to figure out how to set up these very large-scale water systems in a very large development that might contribute toward the, the uh, environmental health of the water, might cut down on some of the resources that need to be brought into play in order to clean the water, but also might create landscape spaces that, that provide habitat for animals or, or, or people. And so it's, it's, it's giving us an opening into a set of conversations that are beginning to become quite interesting. Do you find this LEED framework is exportable and is being uh, received well outside of the United States? Uh, so far, the instances I've seen it, it's just being renamed. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to see how the entire project in Dubai, which consists of 10 towers on a five-story parking podium, um, how it really plays into a project like that, which is just, you know, incredibly resource-intensive, and how those projects achieve the ratings, um, the rating goals that have been set for them. Are there LEED standards in Dubai? They're just adopting them now. 
and so they're they're trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I understand uh, from our experience working on on projects that are being lead rated or, or will become lead certified is that much of the work is actually in the mechanical systems of the building, and so question in the desert got huge mechanical systems mm-hmm. question becomes how do you how, how do you make extensive air conditioning system in a desert environment right. uh, achieve the the rating that you're looking for i don't know the answer to that mm-hmm. but again it, it starts to open up opportunities that might start to make projects a whole lot more interesting than than they've been in the past Talk to us about some of your um, fruitful collaborations. Uh, currently, you're working on the Gardner Museum here in Boston, mm-hmm. and Renzo Piano is the architect. Mm-hmm. Would you typify this as as one of your one of your richer collaborations, or are there others that that have provided or proved to be good models for your practice? Mm-hmm. I think um, projects work in different ways. The Gardner Museum that you mentioned um, is a good project, and is turning into a very good collaboration among a number of the entities that are involved. The project's unique in, in, in terms of its development. It was at a level of design development before we were even involved. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the frameworks uh, for the project had already been developed. But the discussion around what then the landscapes are doing and, and the nature of them has been an extensive conversation between us, the architects, the museum director, a number of the museum's um, curators, including they have a landscape curator because there's a fantastic courtyard in the old palace at that mm-hmm. building, and in some of the landscape historians who have and the, researched. The curator curates the courtyard? The curates the courtyard mm-hmm. as a series of changing exhibits throughout mm-hmm. the year, as well as the kind of regular set of civil engineers and, and in this case, geothermal engineers and, and geotechnical engineers and all the people who would normally be working with on a project. And so it, 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 it is turning into an interesting set of discussions uh, and an interesting collaboration, but one uh, to which we were brought very late in the mm-hmm. process simply because that's the nature of that project. It's primarily a, a building addition project. In other instances, we're involved up front in much larger scale uh, issues. So a recent competition we did in Toronto, for instance, uh, on the Lower Donlands was a very extensive team, which included two sets of architects, two sets of ecologists, uh, hydrologists, a whole set of engineers, as well as community process people and various interactions at times with stakeholders, with with the client's engineering teams, with, with the client itself as a series of kind of waterfront developers. And so that, that project was incredibly rich. Typically what we do in a project like that is look at the set of issues that are put on the table initially and then go into a research mode to really begin to get behind um, what the set of issues are. In this case, there was a river that had been channelized, pushed to the side, that the client wanted to renaturalize in the context of a very large redevelopment project. And so we spent a lot of time on that project working with the hydrologists and the ecologists to try to figure out what what are the criteria for making a river? How do you remake a river? What what sort of things do you need to do in order to allow the, the hydrologic dynamics to begin to flourish and, and, and for that river then to support ecologically the set of, of, of dynamics and, 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 and habitats and, and, and all the things involved in a river? Understanding, though, that we didn't have the footprint that that river initially had, and so it also became an engineering issue. But by doing intense research up front in figuring out what, essentially what were the performance criteria for this reconstituted river and how might we engineer a solution that both um, protects against flooding in certain areas and protects certain types of um, development but might also allow for these ecological dynamics to take place, that became the heart of the project. And it's really around that set of issues that we built the entire project. 
in other instances, sometimes we happen to cr come across chance references online. Uh, there was a project in Portland, Oregon, where after the site tours, you know, we were trying to figure out what approach to take to this project, which was um, 19th century reservoirs in a big urban park, and came across some web chatter between birders who apparently used the park for bird watching. And, and, and through that, we began to trace the types of birds that would come to that park and then figured out where those birds go when they're not in the park and discovered that some of them fly down as far as Central and South America. And we began to look at how you build in habitat initiatives into a, a large-scale public works open space project that might open the project up to these constituencies which weren't introduced to us um, but were already playing a role on the ground and might also introduce the park up to other types of financial resources by building habitat for birds that migrate to Central and South America. Well, there happen to be um, uh, programs through the U.S. Mm -hmm. Fish and Wildlife Service to do that. And so... It, it tends to be a process of research and discovery, and the project begins to grow around that. And, 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 and we tend to enlarge the set of issues in this way. We're able to enlarge the set of issues that are brought to the table at any one instance. And do your associates, your, your collaborators, get really charged, get excited when they find this rather small piece of very specific information or body of very specific information becomes the fundamental formative operations for new public space? Yeah, I think, I, think, I think we tend to have very energetic collaborations with people who do get very excited because some of the work that we're doing isn't, isn't the normal work that they might be doing every day uh, over and over. So the MEP engineers on the, the Dubai project, for instance, don't typically do this kind of work where we're looking at outdoor pools for habitat and, and water cleansing. But they've been incredibly charged with the opportunity to start to think through that thing. And so just that enthusiasm that they bring to the table, it really enriches the mm -hmm. collaboration and the project. In the lower Donlands project, the mm -hmm. Toronto competition, your team was not selected as the winning team. That's so correct. Could you characterize the differences in approaches between the STAS and the MVV approach? Well, Charles Waldheim uh, characterized as pro a project of our project as building a city in the middle of a swamp, um, which in some ways it was, but not not in <laughs> not so much in the problematic ways that that, that he might be alluding to. I think. Uh, what, what we did is we looked at these dynamic ecologies of the river and used that as a framework for building a city that was landscape-based, even though it was incredibly dense and would house 20,000 people. Uh, so we inverted the typical model of figuring out what... Typical model is you figure out what the city needs and the river gets the leftover space. Mm -hmm. we, we inverted that and made that landscape become the fabric that knitted together the project. I think Michael's scheme also looked at how the river worked and gave it its space. I think Michael Michael's scheme is quite good. It, it, it builds in a set of uh, remediation operations that are quite explicit and comprehensive. Michael's been working in Toronto longer than we have, and... and, and uh, probably has a much better sense of, of what's possible in that environment. Mm -hmm. He was also working with Ken Greenberg, who is from Toronto, so obviously they put together a team that was really well-situated within that kind of political urban context. Their project, if you look at it in plan, it, it creates a distinct space for the river and open space, distinct as opposed to where the urban fabric is. He, he very creatively and craftily weaves the river through. But I think if you if you kind of step back from it, there's a very clear distinction between what is uh, development and what is not development. Now, a lot of that is built on information about land ownership and contamination that we, we weren't able to... to to discover or feed into the work that we did. And so in that way, he, he was able to, to, to develop a strategy 
that was very well grounded in the site and also very well grounded in that uh, kind of development arena, if you will. You're listening to Terragrams, and our guest is Chris Reed. Chris is a landscape architect and founder of STOS, Landscape Urbanism. He's currently teaching at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and has been named by the Architecture League of New York as a 2008 emerging voice. You're doing work in Dubai, Mm -hmm. Milwaukee, you mentioned Mm -hmm. this project in Oregon, the project Mm -hmm. in Toronto. Mm -hmm. How do you mitigate the segregation of your office and the place where you make the work with these places that perhaps are new geographies for you and your, your, your colleagues here at Stoss? Well, I think, I think that the thing that we do consistently is, is bring an approach that starts with research and discovery about a place no matter where that place is. So if we were to work on a project next door to our office, we, we certainly know that environment from the everyday, but would approach it in, in the very same way. What are the set of issues that are in play here and, and, and get into the thick of it through, through, through just researching a set of issues? I think we would bring that to to whatever project that we encounter. What we also do is then find people who are on the ground, who understand that place and understand the set of issues that that we want to engage. So they could be local professionals, they could be ecologists, they could be community activists, they could be a set of stakeholders. I think you know a lot of the work that we do is in the public realm and therefore has a public process to it and. Uh, for us, those those interactions with the public are some of the most energizing and formative experiences uh, for some of the work that we do. I think the public has a very good sense, generally, of, of what the issues are and, and what the set of demands on a particular place might be. And I think there's a way to really feed off of that. I think sometimes it's, it's more the... the people who work for government or the bureaucrats who tend to be a little bit more conservative mm-hmm. or worried about things. But the public itself is is is, is actually very um, uh, energizing and, and creative about how they start to think about public space. And so no matter where we're going, we're engaging a set of professionals and constituents and, and, and people who are on the ground who can help us to understand what what some of those currents and dynamics are that are already in play. It's regardless of site, whether it's here um, in the Midwest or in the Middle East. What else drives your research and discovery phase of project? What drives your creative process? Hmm. And I'll follow up with the question, do you feel you have a responsibility or a burden to innovate? No, I, I, I think we have a um, responsibility to, to think critically about an issue, whatever issue that's, that's kind of thrown our way. You know, it's not innovation for the sake of innovation. I think it's, it's, it's a desire to engage a number of different dynamics in a way that can somehow bring them into dialogue in a project that we're working on. Again, what those specific dynamics are changes for every single project. And part of the fun of it is figuring out what what those issues are. Sometimes they're presented to us, uh, but they're only ever partly presented to us. Um, and the rest of it is kind of figuring figuring it out. I think that we do like to push the limits of whether it's a material, whether it's a set of ecological dynamics, in order to see how you might uh, engage something or use something in a way that it hasn't necessarily happened before, just partly to see what happens as a, a testing ground, but also to explore sometimes the inherent properties of a material or, or a set of ecologies. I think that, you know, for instance, we did a project about rubber poured-in-place rubber that's used typically in playground environments. And this is at the Garden Festival. Yeah, in Mati. Yeah, and, um, you know, there the idea is, here's a product that we work with all the time in a public environment and yet is not worked with in a very mm-hmm. interesting way. So the, the, the point wasn't to innovate. It was to engage people 
in an urban environment in a way that they're not necessarily accustomed to, but in ways that 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 humans have the natural capacity to um, explore a space through uh, a sense of of encounter and discovery. That's something that's left out of of, of public space design a lot. And I, and I think some of these material explore, explorations that we do might then allow for for uh, social interactions which are richer or at least more open ended than than what might. Occur uh, in the typical urban urban environment. When do you know when your project is ready to move out of schematic phase to present to a client and into a development phase? Uh, the deadline. <laughs> I think I, I, I think we're constantly moving ahead and moving back and testing ideas and refining ideas. I think that's that part of it's typical of, of any designer. But th this issue of being involved in a project for a longer duration than simply the end of the construction observation phase, I think, is important as a way to begin to track how some of the strategies that you put in place play out through time. The Mati project, um, we had the advantage of there being an on-site person who was actually head of the construction crew who was very enamored with the garden and would not only bring people into the garden, but would photograph them mm -hmm. over the course of the summer. And he produced hundreds of photographs of people just simply engaging the mm -hmm. space. So it was fantastic. We actually had a record of, of mm -hmm. how people began to, 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 to move and operate and kind of appropriate that space. At other times, with some of the ecological systems that we're putting in place, I think there does need to be some rigorous follow-up and even interaction. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the contract doesn't allow for that, but I think that there are opportunities where, you know, on our own personal initiative, we're able to track how a project changes through time. Do you think will the, the, the practice of landscape architecture will ever break into a more long uh, will ever develop a more long-term investment with the actual project, with the actual site? Because it's all it's rare that we hear of conditions when a landscape architect is taken on through the maintenance phases, right. is, let alone sort of uh, is contracted to make a maintenance plan right. or taken in two, three, four, five right. years after. Right. It, it, it is very rare. and. Sometimes it, 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 it ends up being somebody on the staff rather than somebody from my office who might be the person who's essentially acting in that role. I mean, you could say maintenance manuals. This is one step toward that. The problem with that is that they're prescriptive and they don't allow for testing or responsiveness over time. And, and frankly, they don't lay out a whole lot of if-then scenarios. You know, you could imagine a very creative ma maintenance manual that says, well, if this set of conditions emerge, then you do this or this or this. Or if this other set of conditions emerge, then you do this or this or this. I think we tend to, um, in larger scale uh, planning projects or larger scale design projects, we tend to start to lay that out at the beginning and look at those points not only when landscape might, architect might be involved for maintenance or ongoing management of the landscape itself or the ecosystem, but also in terms of the public process. At what point might you bring the public back into dialogue as a portion of the project is built out to then get new feedback on the new project. It, the public process also needs to happen in stages over a period of time, not just up front at the beginning of the project, so that the, they, can, they, they can actually experience those, those landscapes on a daily basis and then somehow feed that information back into how the, 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 the project framework begins to evolve through are, time. Are you suggesting that the public should be given more voice in how landscapes, public landscapes evolve. We just, we recently had a discuss, uh, discussion with Ruben Rainey who talked about the work of Robert Royston mm -hmm. and about the disappearance of many of his parks. And mm -hmm. he, he mentioned that there were very few still in existence. Mm -hmm. 
the question comes up, how much latitude should the general public have on the, the longevity of a park given its very malleable and very vulnerable and fragile and easily changeable? I think, I, I think the public should have that role. I was thinking specifically about very large-scale projects where there's a phasing strategy laid out, and I, I, I was particularly talking about a way to kind of bring them back after a phase one, before phase two, and then, you know, likewise. But this issue you bring up about malleability, I mean, in how many ways has Central Park actually changed in terms of program use, activity, whatever, um, over the course of its history? It's, it's been changed in very radical ways sometimes. Reservoir, non-reservoir, ball fields, concerts—things that that Olmsted couldn't couldn't have imagined—and yet the framework of the park lives on. It's able to absorb those new uses. I think it is important to to engage the public, but I also think it's important to be very straight up front to to understand that there will be an ongoing interaction with your the project that you're developing, and if you don't build in a flexible enough framework for that project, it's likely going to be erased or redone at some point in the future. And I think the less flexible the framework, the, the, the more, ultimately, the more change that will, will happen to it and the more the kind of initial design intent will be erased. But I think, again, that has to, to, to do with how the project's conceived from the beginning. I think in, in a lot of our work, we understand that it could be a set of uh, environmental conditions that, that radically change the character of a park. Um, sea level rise of three feet can, can inundate large portions of some of the projects that we work on, and we build in strategies to be able to deal with that. It might be a fiscal issue where all of a sudden public funds dry up and the city town agency isn't able to maintain that park. So what happens? Um, the project needs to be able to absorb this change in fiscal uh, priorities as well as uh, changes in lifestyle and, and, and the priorities of how people want to engage a park. Um, if, if new activities are to be laid in, how are they laid in? Or how does the park framework allow for, for new uses to be absorbed? without changing the kind of bones or DNA of, of how that park functions. Could you describe to us briefly the structure of your studio, size, how projects run through the studio, um, and any sort of external pieces of the studio that are fundamental to its 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 week-to-week? Um, -week? Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, small and quite nimble. Can, can change radically from two to eight people at any one time. We have the advantage of being able to tap into any number of networks of students or just former students because Austin does have a strong design community. There are a number of schools here. I teach in a number of places. And so we're able to draw on people who who may only want to work for shorter periods of time, and that, that jives with with what we're able to do in terms of cash flow and, and project load and all that. So I think the, the defining characteristic of the firm has been its nimbleness and flexibility in the way it uh, expands and contracts according to the uh, set of demands that are put on it. Through the course of the last couple of years, we've developed um, a, a more stable core and a more diverse core than we have in the past. And so there, uh, I'm the only principal, but now there are a couple, couple more senior level people, Jill and Scott, who have been here for a few years, who bring their own set of uh, backgrounds and, and interests and issues to the table. And then we, we have a set of, of anywhere from, from one to six other people at any one time to help us think through the project. I think it, it's a very dynamic working environment. I think individuals can construct their own research agendas. Um, at the beginning of the project, we're all kind of trying to get our heads around the issue, and, 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 and in, in, in this way, everybody's involved in that process of research and discovery and can, can, can really have a voice in how the project is, is formed at its core. I think, I think this idea of being nimble is good. I think the, the, that some of our workforce is mobile is, is, is okay and, and is kind of 
de facto. It's how it's it's just how the contemporary city works in many ways. And 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 you know, in much the same way, we're able to tap into a network of resources and professionals, collaborators, at any one time, depending on the 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 nature of the project. And so we're able to add these other experts on an ad-needed basis to, to begin to open up di- a specific set of dialogues around a specific set of issues for every individual project. Is this how you can compete with some of the bigger bigger offices, such as Hargraves or Sasaki or MVV? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, financially first, yeah, it's the, the only way to survive sometimes. But, um, it's but yeah, I mean, well, uh, being able to, to grow and shrink, mm-hmm. I think, I think, and limit our overhead and, and, and allow for some of our limitations to, to find a kind of resonance with some, some of the desires of some of the, the workforce that kind of moves through here. I think that's very good and healthy. I think in the end, certainly the bigger firms have a bigger infrastructure, but in all likelihood, we're probably assigning the same number of people to the project. So you can have a 400-person team, but you're still only getting five people working on on that particular project. It's just five out of 400 or five out of five. How do you balance the business of Stoss with the design practice of Stoss? Oh, it's painful. You know, you just do it, and and you do make decisions that are strategic on a number of different levels. I mean, frankly, one of the things I learned from George Hargraves was how to run a firm and how to think strategically about the projects. That there are some projects that you get just to get the next project, and that's 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 a really useful thing. There are some projects that you're going to get that are going to make more money and can actually support some of the other projects. And there are other projects where there's a real opportunity to do something creative and maybe the budget for that project doesn't support it, but there's a real opportunity to, to really delve in. And it's not always obvious at the beginning which of the projects fit in which of those categories. Sometimes it's not even obvious at the end. But, I, I you know, this this sense of, of thinking strategically about... Uh, projects and research and conceptual development and fiscal strategies, whether they're for the project or for the firm, I think I think it's all kind of uh, looped in there together at some point. Is there is there hope for the small design practice, or does it need to bump up to twenty five in order to become financially solvent and uh, mm. sustainable over a long time? No, I don't. I, I no, I don't think the size. I mean. I, 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 I think size just breeds another set of circumstances. Uh, I think two or four is hard to, to carry on big projects, but I think the stage that we're at now, 8 to 10 or, or, or maybe even 12, allows us the flexibility to work on, on some larger-scale projects and, and to be able to have the, 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 the people to be able to do that. While still maintaining a kind of um, level of personal interaction for everybody uh, on the projects as the, as they're developed, I mean the nice part now is that you know we're all in one big room, and even if you're not working on the project, you're probably hearing the conversation that's going on about the project uh, at the time, and that piece of it I think is is critical. In talking about some of some of the outsiders who have influenced your work, you mentioned George Hargraves, mm-hmm. Michael Valkenberg, Jim Corner, um, Ian McHarg. Mm-hmm. Would you would you agree that that's a, a good assessment of uh, some of your mentors, or do you have a different? Uh, a no, that's picture? a that's a good one. Um, um, I think early on when I was at Hargraves, I bumped into Beth Meyer. She claims I was sleeping in the hallway at school. <laughs> I. I well, I might have been. But she, through a series of conversations, really opened up landscape as a medium, as a conceptual body of work, to me very, very early on. And I think that was important. I think the opportunities that Michael gave me right out of school were critical. And then spending longer periods of time with the corner as a set of academic exercises and learning how to run projects and a business from, from Hargraves, I, I think those things all factor in there. But each of those people have had a very defining influence, I think, on, on me. And amongst your peers, whose work do you admire? 
Uh, well, I think um, I think the work that Charles Waldheim has been doing over the past um, decade now, in terms of building up a body of literature on and around the issues of landscape urbanism, is critical. He's also interacted with us as a critic on projects, occasionally as a collaborator on projects, and so I think I think his role. Uh, as a peer, as a very creative, critical peer, um, has been paramount. I mean, certainly I look across the design disciplines at some of the fantastic work emerging out of firms in Europe. Um, there aren't a whole lot of younger firms in the States, although I share a lot of time with Mike Blyer at Landworks, who's practically down the street here. Mike's a few years ahead of the game and is running a very, he's got a thriving practice um, uh, at this point, uh, doing very, very good work, and he and I are able to touch base on a very regular basis to compare notes, talk about projects, talk about staff, talk about running a business in, in Boston and all those sorts of things. And then there are a set of people I come across in um, some of the academic work I do and some of the lectures I do, and, and those are kind of scattered across the U.S., but you know, there are faculty at Harvard, faculty at Penn in particular, Anita Anu um, down there, and new person Karen McCloskey, who all are able to open up very creative and critical dialogues. And, and to, sometimes to give some very frank feedback on, <laughs> on what we're doing here. And to, to wrap up, how do you see your work evolving in the next, the next half decade? Well, I think, I think we're at a point now where we're just starting to get on a more regular basis, larger scale, complex projects. I think getting a few things into the ground has been important. Getting um, the waterfront in Green Bay into the ground, which will start uh, later this year, will be uh, a huge factor in convincing future potential clients that, that we have the capacity to, to do these types of projects. So, I, I, you know, I'm already feeling that we're on that trajectory right now. Um, and, and, and I think one of the things that we bring to the table is an ability to understand how to build landscapes uh, and therefore an ability to test some of these ideas that we've been kicking around and others have been kicking around and writing about in very real ways in the public realm in a built project. Uh, applying some of the, the critical ideas around the topic of landscape urbanism and seeing how they physically, socially, ecologically play out on the ground, I think, is where we're going to be in the next 10 years. And I, I, I think we're... I think we're going to be unique in that regard. Great. It's been, it's been wonderful sharing the afternoon with you and hearing your insight on young practice in the Boston area, breaking into the greater world. <laughs> Best of luck with uh, the evolution of your office, and uh, we'll see you around. Great. Thanks. It's been fun. Chris Reed is a landscape architect and the founder of the Boston-based practice Stoss Landscape Urbanism. He's been named by the Architecture League of New York as a 2008 emerging voice. Thank you for joining us for the 15th Dispatch of Terragram. Join us next time for a conversation with Gary Hildebrand. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. This concludes our 15th delivery of Terragrams. Because I just want to keep calling me at night, all hours of the night, calling my husband, my brother, calling me every day. He's after me, and I, I was devastated. I was without a job, without a salary. I, I was trying to get unemployment, and I was told it first kicks in after a few weeks, and I was busy looking for another job, and I also have a heart condition, and I told him I have a heart condition. I said, here, take a, a few dollars. I'm sorry this happened to you, just but just leave me alone. I'm not the person who, who deposited us.
myself, April, Tammy, and Brad.